This is Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. Here we talk to industry experts about the future of mobility and how it will shape both our lives and the world we live in. Welcome to another episode of Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. I'm Matt Wood, and joining me in the studio today is Paul Cullard. I said it right? Absolutely. <laughs> CEO of All Purpose Transport in Queensland. Oh, hi, Matt. How are you going? Yeah. And, and of course, Tim. Yeah. I was about to introduce Tim, but... Tim I'm normally... Like I'm third, and I'm, I'm lucky to be back again. I've, I've done my hiatus. I'm back. The third, <laughs> the third wheel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's always on probation. It's <laughs> continual probation. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for coming along, Paul, because I wanted to have a chat to you about being an early adopter in going electric. What year was it that the first electric vehicles joined your fleet? So 2019, we put the first truck on. It was December, Christmas 2019 was the first EV we threw on, and uh, that was the journey that we started. But it actually started way back probably in uh, 2016 is we started talking to our client, IKEA, around their zero emission strategy, and that was where we started to say, what can we do and what vehicles can we bring on? So the actual journey of trying to find the vehicle started way back then. We then have established that the SEA was probably the only vehicle we could find in Australia at the time, and that was 2019, December 2019 was the uh, ground zero for us. I probably should have mentioned during the intro that you're not actually a VGA customer. Like, uh, it, no, so, no. No, so that was why there was an ominous click when the door locked on your way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm now going to be yeah. Yeah. I've got some when, paperwork for you. I sign, press, yeah, press R, three copies. No, that's all good. <laughs> now, I would imagine like anyone on an early adoption kind of journey, it's probably had its highs and lows but and challenges. But before we get into that, so... Why go there in the first place? So for us as a business, we had obviously IKEA was our largest customer and we had large exposure there with our fleet and with obviously our staff working there. So the risk to us was if we didn't get on board the program, we had the, well, the risk to the business was we'd lose that, we'd lose IKEA. So for us initially, the scepticism was around the EV going, hey, we've got to get these things because it's a commercial decision. And then it, then it became a, a decision where we're going, well, what's the right thing to do rather than and looking at EVs and saying they're hard, they're difficult, it's all clunky, we said, well, why are we actually doing that? And we're a, a last mile business and we do around about 2,000 2, to 2,500 2, deliveries a day. And they're all into people's homes, they're around residential streets. And what we're doing is we're taking diesel vehicles into those areas. So for us, the right thing to do is to get the diesel particulates out of those residential areas. So we took a bit of a reverse engineering on that and going, right, how do we work backwards from an EV story and make it why we're actually doing it rather than it being a commercial type arrangement? And that's how we started our EV journey. But compared to like now where there's a lot more discussion around it and stuff like that, I mean, there kind of been a lot of resources around then to draw upon. Like, I mean, no, you're it, kind of making it up as you're going along, right? It was very much doing that. And, and even simple things like charging. We never considered charging infrastructure. We thought you'd just go to a dealership, buy a truck, put it on the road, and magically it would just fuel itself every night. And magically, you'd have this EV running around Brisbane. But it became very, very quickly learning how do you charge EVs? How do you place EVs in, in, even in our depot. Simple things like our insurer doesn't let the EV sit underneath the awning because if their vehicle catches fire, it won't put the fire out. So we then had to go and create an outdoor area for the EVs to be charged. But the flip side of that is you then got all the EV equipment, charging equipment exposed to the Queensland weather, which cooks it in the sun. So the life of the charging equipment is now being deteriorated by the fact we've got it out in the weather. 
So a whole lot of learning curves from that. I mean, it was fun. I've got to say it was fun, but it was... Now, uh, now you can say it was fun. Now I, I can say I, it's I imagine fun. December's quite a busy period for you as well. So implementing something new during December. Well, it also was, if, if you remember 2019, we actually ended up having the really bad succession of storms. So we ended up putting an EV out on wet roads, which in itself was a challenge uh, mm. because Queensland's humidity and, and the moisture in the air, the thing did have some challenges around the technology actually being working previously in Melbourne. It was suddenly working in Queensland in humidity. So we had uh, a couple of trips back on the tilt trays. That was fun for us. <laughs> I bet it was. How many electric vehicles are in the fleet now? We've now got 10. So we've got 10 vehicles operating. And then we've actually been quite brand agnostic when it comes to it. We've actually put on three different brands in, in there. We've put a Photon, we've put an EC11, and we've put, am I not meant to mention this? No, it's fine. I'm just saying. This is nodding, as I'm The reason we did that, because we use an owner-driver model, and what we wanted to do was show the drivers that we had different choices. And because they were so bleeding edge, they were basically, a van was very different to the truck, which was very, so each was a very different vehicle, which gave us the opportunity for the drivers to throw them out there and put literally go out in the roads, try before you buy, yep. and then they can then decide, hey, which ones they really wanted from there. And what was the, I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you had those initial discussions. I mean, you have an owner-driver model. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going, hey, guys, you need to change your vehicles. Yeah. And um, by the way, this thing can only go 200 kilometres. And by the way, you have to bring it back here every night to charge. And by the way, it was, yeah, it was different. And I think what we did in the first two years of that program was we actually subsidised them quite heavily and to prove that the actual technology was okay. And then the practice of changing the driver's thinking, their mindset of, I need to drive the vehicle as a diesel versus driving an EV, very different with the regenerative braking and all of that going on. It is a different experience. And I think a lot of the drivers weren't prepared for that when we initially started. And what was the feedback like? Uh, the big one was the noise or the lack of. That was the major safety benefit that we got from these things straight away was in traffic, the Ratley diesel, the driver trying to communicate with his offsider in the vehicle. Instantly, that became no noise. A lot more aware of traffic, a lot more aware of people, for example, in residential streets calling out to them, hey, this is over here where you want the delivery. So they actually found that that was a really quick pickup for them. The reverse of that was the regen braking and all that was actually where they actually had to change their driving behaviours. So coming up to traffic lights, not in a diesel, you run up there at 60 k's an hour, slam the brakes on with 100 metres to go and you stop. With the EVs, you've got to start thinking, I'm starting 200 or 300 metres out and I'm letting the thing cruise in because you're trying to keep charging the vehicle. Did they get on the bus though? Like, did like how much convincing did you ha really have to do or was it a case of like once they got in the driver's seat and just went, oh, wow? Um, I think the initial thing was the uh, we actually had some of the vehicles wound up a little bit too tight. You can actually almost spin the wheels on them. They were that torquey. Right. Mm. The, the change from a diesel to electric was quite significant, as in power. So they were going, how good is this? What we then found was we had to start toning the actual power down to get longer life out of the or longer distance out of the actual fleet. So playing around with that was probably the big difference we found was that uh, getting drivers to come on the journey, because we had to make them sort of run through their for it was six months of using the vehicle and playing around with it before they then said, okay, every day is a normal day for me versus, you know, with a diesel truck, you hop in and just drive it. Yeah, okay. And with that sort of model, clearly 
electric vehicles are more expensive. So how, how does that work? Because, like, obviously you see at the moment everyone's like, well, they're more expensive, so, you know, therefore the freight's got to be more expensive. Somebody's got to pick up the cost somewhere. So, like... Yeah, I sort of... I, now that we've experienced it, I disagree with that because I think what we're finding now is the CapEx cost, absolutely. So the buying the equipment is expensive, but if you look at it over a lot, and when we're doing these vehicles, remember we were in very low interest rate periods as well. So for us, buying the equipment with low interest rates, we were finding that the the cost of the vehicle per week, and then you put in the cost of the fueling. I mean, a diesel fuel was a hundred, the electric was twelve was twelve dollars for a day. So instantly the drivers are going, shit, this is a lot cheaper. Mm. And what we also then found was the magic of taking them to a service. Well, there's no gearbox to fix, there's no clutches, all they're doing is brakes and tires and a bit and, of grease. And, and at the start, more tires than they originally should have been, but now that's that's Absolutely. leveled out. And, right? and one thing we found was the tires now last a lot longer on these vehicles because you don't have gear changes and yep. the actually the wear on the tires is better. Brakes, you don't use less You're brakes because braking, the regen braking. Yeah. That's the same thing as us, to be fair, and, and I'll just talk about the Volvo product for a little bit, but we know originally we had the same issue with torque down low and then having to reprogram that out. So for a while it was around the driver training on how to drive the vehicle and be wary of how much throttle you put on at the start. We couldn't fully teach that out of people, so the software had to come over and take over uh, in limitations of power down low. So originally we saw, I think, 50% increase in tyre wear, whereas now because we don't have those gear changes and we're seeing people drive them a little bit more efficiently, I guess, in the end, that tyre consumption is reduced in comparison to a diesel product. But echoing, I think, some of your comments around the driver's perspective on these vehicles is originally there is that, let's say, angst about something new. Maybe I've used the right word, I'm not sure, but as you go around the block, as you use it for a day or a week, you start to realise what the benefits are and there's the talking and that communication and less noise, but, and I'm asking, this is going to be a question, is for us, we found a lot of the feedback, and Matt, you, took the, you did the interviews for a lot of these, was the drivers were saying, well, I feel less fatigued because I'm not, I'm not having the sound, I'm not having the vibrations, I'm not jostled around as much. At the end of a, a work day, the workplace is a lot safer and, more, and less fatiguing for me. Is that well, similar? And I think the other thing you're finding is because we're routing the vehicles very tightly because of the EV range, you're routing to charging potential external charging areas as well, mm. the driver's work is far more structured, mm. whereas when they've got a diesel and they can zigzag, they can move around, they can afford to deviate off the actual route path. When they're using EVs, if they don't stick on the route path, they're coming back on a tilt train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've got to get that where you immediately get that thing where the driver's behaviour becomes my mission is to leave and come back, not, hey, my day. So their days are far more fulfilled, I guess, by following route plans and all that. We have the same part when we do the driver training. So originally driver training on the diesel products was if you drive more conservatively or you get more efficiency out of the vehicles, you save money, less diesel. Same thing happens with the electrics is you, you, know, you use less energy if you drive appropriately, so you know, less money. But the other part is if you know, potentially a driver can do up to 30% differential on, on the range. If you don't drive appropriately, you might not get home. So you really instill those mm. original efficiencies of driving behaviours by scaring people into you may not come home. So we ran vehicles through. It's good. Yeah. It's use fear. You said like World War II yeah. bomber pilots. It is, yeah, our mission and, yeah, bomber, bomber command. And, no, but really it comes down to we've got 38 drivers doing the task and what we've done is we've rotated the EVs through those 38 people and what you've found is each driver's perception versus reality has been far apart, where the range anxiety, all the things that people say, all of a sudden they're realising actually it's not as bad as what they thought. 
because they're suddenly looking at their odometer on their diesel truck going, oh, I only did 200 kilometres today, and it's not actually it's the same as what I'm doing on an EV. So what, what's the problem? Yeah, we've had a couple of those conversations where it's like, oh, well, someone's interested in electric, and, you know, well, how many kilometres do you do per day? Oh, we do 500 kilometres. Okay, well, let's pull your telematics out. Well, actually, you're only doing 200 kilometres, <laughs> and that's more than sufficient for this vehicle. Mm-hmm. Oh, it actually is. Once you realise the data and conceptualise it for them and put it into practice, it does go away because you can show that, that mm. planning that tight planning around it as well, get more efficiencies in other manners. I think where I see the biggest challenge is external infrastructure, as Mm. in charging. Mm. Uh, What we're finding now, we've got 10 charging points set up at our depot. We need to have 38 of those within the next two years. Now, we physically don't have the space in our our facility to put 38 charging points, notwithstanding the load we're going to put onto the the grid. So the ideal scenario for us is that the vans in particular Mm. go home to the owner-driver's house at night time. That's what they currently do with their diesel vehicles and they park them up. Now, there are, you know, you, you can put the 14 amp chargers on there, get enough charge in there to get themselves moving, mm. but then you need that little bang charge. Now, a lot of our clients we're seeing now when we use the EVs aren't thinking about in five years' time when I'm loading, there's an opportunistic charge and go, bang, I can put 10 minutes of loading, 10 minutes of charging, and I can put 20% back in the battery. They're not looking at that yet, and that's probably the education that needs to happen as well. That's part of what we do as well, to be fair. When we're modelling out plans like that, it's like, well, if the truck stopped and it's unloading or loading, don't you don't have to go an extra route somewhere else hmm. to get fuel or energy, you can do it at the same time. That opportunity part charging works out well. And if, if there is a driver break, if they're stopping for a, a drink or some food or rest of it, if other facilities as well, truck stops, mm-hmm. you know, those opportunities there work quite well because for you, 10 charges on the depot is sufficient, but obviously going to that 38, that's a huge onus on that one site. You can kind of spread the love and mm-hmm. the best part we can do with recent advancements in, in energy plans, especially here in Queensland, is creating a lot of solar energy during the day. If you can plug in and consume a lot of that wherever the vehicle is during the day, then it's a huge benefit, not just to the operations because it's generated quite cheaply, but also to the grid as well and consuming a lot of that extra solar and renewables that are coming And if on. you go pure zero emissions, which mm. is what the whole goal is, if you can charge off the roof mm. into the vehicle and there's no change in that, there's your, that's, that's zero emission. You become your own oil tycoon. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> and look, I mean, the thing we've set with our charging infrastructure as well is we've got each driver's got a TAPCO card. Yeah. So what we can do is we can monitor by charger what the drivers are using, what they're actually pulling through by vehicle as well. But the flip side is that is if you move that to a commercial model in two years' time, you know exactly how much you need to charge for your electricity use by the different equipment. Now, that's what I think a lot of people aren't thinking about where they've got big areas of land in their warehousing operations is they could start creating, use their roof to make the power and then create a public charging area out in their car park, which they could then use for opportunistic charging. What a great extra revenue stream to oh, supplement absolutely. to supplement the decarbonisation. Because I imagine, you know, with your operations now, the charges are used overnight primarily, that's yep. about it. Yep. Um, whereas during the day, they're sitting there idle. So it's Correct. a thing about it as an asset. You haven't swept that asset by nope. any stretch. You have that opportunity to recuperate the costs mm. by billing people for the consuming your solar. Absolutely. How much solar do you have on the site? So we've currently got 100 kilowatts sitting yep. on, the, on the roof, but we've now got, we're putting another 100 on later this year. Wow. And then we've got, well, we've got 18,000 square metres of warehouse. So do it. we're using just a little <laughs> postage stamp of, of space at the moment. Yeah, if you right. looked at that now, you could sort of probably power the whole suburb from, <laughs> yeah. from the roof. So, and that's where I really see the vision from this. You talk about why we're doing it. I see the true zero emission being 
we actually are net zero as a business mm. because of the power we take off the roof. Mm. We then run our operations from no power. All of that's done with zero emission. And then you go and get some battery storage going on for the vehicles overnight. Because at the moment, the battery technology isn't really at a point in the big static batteries to go and put 10 vehicles on charge overnight. And not, we it's just not cost generate. effective and it's, you know, nah. it's, hard, it's hard to implement. It takes up a lot of space to be fair Absolutely. as well. Yeah. And that, that'll be an interesting advancement we'll see, I think, over the next five years or so in terms of what that looks like and that technology evolution. But for a lot of these vehicles, 2019, the battery coming out of that vehicle in, call it five years' time, potential to use that as a uh, stationary storage battery as well. Absolutely. It may not be sufficient for the truck anymore and doing the job that's required. So, and that's one part from our side of things we're working on and looking forward to is that our batteries will work in a truck and then they'll move into stationary storage and they become a an, an, another asset. Um, and that's use. why we're really keen to see the OEMs come in because at the moment mm. the technology that we're using is a hybrid type vehicles coming mm. in and and are they the perfect vehicles for the task? Well, they're doing- well, they are now. They are now, yeah. but what we want to see is that whole, how do we get the circular mm. economy as well, is how do we make sure that when these vehicles are at end of life, that they're actually treated the right way. Yep. Whereas right now at this situation, I don't really know. And we, there's an unknown. You don't know what the residual depreciation value of these things are. And that's a fascinating topic because it is so new and we haven't had a point where we've had to look at the residual value on them because they haven't got to that aged inventory mm. as of yet. So there's positives that can come of that. You know, there's, mm. there's huge opportunities that can come of those vehicles at their end of life, whether they are you know, refitted with reconditioned battery or the, the battery's taken out and used other ways or anything like that. There is a lot of opportunity, mm -hmm. but it still needs to be work done to realise it. But see, the vehicles aren't doing a lot of mileage. So they're not doing line haul. They're not doing a lot of mm. long distance, 200 kilometres a day. So they're actually going to have a life after their eight years. I think the battery lasts for eight years or yeah. whatever it is. I actually haven't been there for eight years, so I, I can't, yeah, 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 I can't yeah. tell you whether they do. Everyone says let us know. Years. Let us know how you go. Yeah, yeah. 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 We'll do a follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, overall, it is a fascinating part to think mm. about what that future looks like with these vehicles. And we've seen situations overseas where they've had, say, the Nissan Leafs in, in Japan for, I think it's like 15 years they've had them. There's enough volume of those batteries now that they get reconditioned, they get broken down and recycled for value, or they get utilised in other ways, stationary storage. But they're still very quite small batteries, not at volume. I think that also the rate of acceleration in terms of development is mm. like, talking like 2019, like it was yesterday when it actually unfortunately wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah. But also just look at the change in what's available and even the performance of what was oh, being offered then as to now. Like, I mean, we've even seen that with our own batteries, like just yeah. the increasing capacity. Well, I, I think of the, the first vehicle we got, the iPhone 1. You mm. know, you call, yeah, it, the, yeah, you yeah, call yeah. it the iPhone 1. We're at probably iPhone 4 now. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. so you, what you want to do is you want to see the hard thing is to look at that vehicle and go, it looks tired, it looks dated. But when at this time, it was the, the latest and greatest tech. Mm, mm. So the, the speed of, you're 100% right on the speed of tech. Even just how the trucks are coming out now, they're becoming more truck-like. And yep. that's a noticeable thing as well. Mm. Um, where initially they were a diesel motor removed and it was electric motor put in. You're now getting the genuine, hey, these are built as electric trucks. Yeah, from the and that's a big change we're seeing as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the advancement. We'll talk about ours for a second. And in three years, we've had a doubling of density. Like you need any. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Off I go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've seen a doubling of battery density in, in three years. Yeah. Not that that'll continue at that rate, but we're a technology consumer on that respect. But that advancement and, and the capability really opens up to much more options. I mean, you think about 
you know, the Nissan Leaf is probably a prime example. You know, that and Tesla Model S was what was available eight years ago. Now look what's on the road and what kind of technology and capability the passenger vehicles have. What the next two to five years looks like in terms of yeah. vehicle capability and refinement and all the rest of it, it is a really interesting space. Absolutely. And, and one I imagine you're going to do quite well at because you have all those lessons learned hmm. from uh, – Opportunities, trials and tribulations, or opportunities. Let's say one of the things I was speaking to Matt before just just the other day was around the service as a SAAS. I think yeah. it's, it's, mm, yeah. So what we're finding now is the the next generation of vehicles we're putting on now, they're actually already all the drivers doing is basically renting a vehicle. Yeah. And yeah. at the end of two years, end of whatever period of time, they throw it back and they get the new technology mm. in. And if you look at our our model in, and if you look around Brisbane or you look around Melbourne anywhere. You'll see the taxi truck companies primarily use secondhand vehicles. Mm. So our business there, using the owner drivers, they get the trucks that go and do line haul that then they come and they use them locally because they can use them for another five or ten years and then the, the vehicle's out its life. Ideally now we want to create that secondhand yes. market for the vehicles, which is where we see out these ones going, mm. but we then have the replacement coming through with the new tech. Big thing is around safety, and I think you both were going to mention that as well, is that you want to make sure that when you're putting your drivers into these, that ultimately, long-term, are they going to be safe as well? Yeah. And outcomes from leaking batteries or water, all that sort of stuff, you need to sit back and look at the safety angle as well. Mm-hmm. And actually, on that note, have you had any incidents? Like, no. you know, no, yeah. you know and, and everyone has, you can Google the horror stories, yes, but the reality is mm-hmm. it's not unlike a diesel or a petrol. You can Google petrol fires, you can see all you want. You can Google yeah, but most bat- of the time they're not reported on because they happen, you know, so, yeah, so, so free. But it's when you actually do that. And, you know, for us, we've had a situation where they are bleeding edge vehicles from a technology point of view, but no, we haven't never had a situation where a driver's been at risk and harm. Mm. Fortunately, we haven't had any collisions at this stage, so that's a good thing mm. because the only thing with them is the exposure on the sides, obviously, where the batteries are. Yep. But for us, that's – and they've got protection and that stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, it's all, it's all built in. You know, th- yeah. At the end of the day, it's, lithium's still lithium, right? But you know, the batteries can be made safe and tested to a certain mm. standard. They can be built onto a chassis to take those impacts and all the rest of it. Mm. And, and that's how it, the advancement's going forward. But in the end, they, it is lithium. It's a new – material for our emergency service to work with and mm-hmm. they're doing a pretty good job of it so far in terms of upskilling and educating themselves. So. Absolutely. We haven't heard of a horror story, I don't think, yet. No. Touch no. wood. Touch wood. No, <laughs> no it's just, <laughs> you know, you said yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That. But the, Thanks, yeah. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> But has it been good for business? Like, is Absolutely. That, now, think, that's mm, the commercial yeah, side. So, yeah, so right. like, being on the bleeding edge has the advantages of being, obviously, what I'm doing today. I'm talking to you about it today. Because you're doing that, you're creating a story, a story we can tell, but you have a look at your top blue chip customers, they're all reporting on carbon. Yeah. And they're all coming back and saying, who's doing that? Now, fortunately, from day one, we've created a CO2 report, mm. which we sent out to all of our customers to say, this is what we're doing. All of a sudden, you're seeing the executives saying, hey, can I get a copy of that report every month? Because I want to see what's happening. Now, we've broken it down to one of our other retail customers in clothing, and we've broken it down to two grams per box that we're saving when we <laughs> deliver product on the EV. Now, isn't that a great way to go back to your board and go, hey, we're saving two grams per box. No surprise, we've just got the new contract. So has it helped commercially? Absolutely. Mm. Because it puts you, not only you're doing the right thing for your people, so you're attracting and retaining your employees, mm. but you're also going out to the market and making it, saying to the market, hey, these guys are on bleeding edge, but they're doing the right thing. Or 
perceived to be doing the right thing because there's always the skeptics who come along and go, oh, it's mm. all the people come along and talk about this, all this green stuff, which is to me, I look at the numbers and we do about one tonne of CO2 per truck is what we save mm. per month. Mm. And so if you look at that, I'm, I'm finding that very hard to say, get someone to come along and say, well, is that wrong or am I greenwashing? Yeah. Well, I'm not. Yeah, here's the numbers. Here's the rationale behind it. So in that conversation, originally you were reporting, you produced it, you're handing it on to your customers. How's that conversation shifting from your customers genuinely just asking for it now? Big, yeah, very noticeable. So it's, again, I think these are being driven from board decisions mm. where they and they have to report these sort of things. And I saw it the other day, Westfield are now asking their staff to report the how much time they're traveling to work every day so they can calculate their carbon oh, wow. footprint from their staff. Oh, wow. And I sat there going, wow. So yeah. it's really becoming a, a very, very important topic. Mm. Mm. And what you can do by being out there and having the advantage of four years of data is we can show them from here how the graph's going up. How we're improving, we're, how we're refining, how we're expanding. Upon. Correct. Yeah. So instead of just suddenly having this big jump, we've got this little line going up, yeah. which is it's a, it's a good way to tell a story, I guess. I'm stealing that, by the way. So I'm stealing a lot of this mindset. Yeah. <laughs> Why break the habit of a lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, do you get much feedback from the coalface, like from the, the actual consumer receiving the um, their goods? Like, you know, we, we sign rate one of the trucks. We yep. deliberately didn't sign rate the other trucks because we wanted to get a feeling of it. Yep. I reckon 99% of the customers are oblivious to the fact that it's actually got, it's got a bloody great big power cord on it and a big <laughs> plug, yeah. and they're oblivious to that. Mm. When they actually find out that it is, they run out and get a photograph with it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's why I was asking because this has come up before. We were talking about consumer behaviour. Mm. We were talking to Heather about it. Mm, yeah, mm, about mm. What options you pick for your transport. Yeah, yeah, what options you pick for your transport, whether people are prepared to like pay more for- Or wait, um, or wait longer. Or wait or... longer, which is probably mm. the key. Yeah. And all that sort of stuff. So so I was, yeah, I was really interested to see what their consumer reaction was. I think they're so conditioned now to, I don't know, during COVID in particular, you mm. saw those white two-ton vans mm. just whizzing by. Mm. I, I stopped every five minutes at our house. I've got, mm. four, I've got three daughters. So, uh, <laughs> but you sort of found that it was that was really not, where, where the vans are look exactly the same. Yeah. So people are not actually looking at that. What they don't hear is noise. Yeah. And we've only had probably a handful of people come out and go, oh, that's an electric truck. But what we don't do is we don't advertise it. Now, I guess if you put bloody great big signage all over it, you made it green and flashing lights and all that, you could probably generate some noise from that. Where we were a bit reluctant on that was the risk of it actually having a breakdown and then you've got your customer's logo on it and everyone mm. photographing and going, mm. oh, the skeptic's going, oh, there's one broken down. Now, I see a lot of other trucks on tilt trays, not just electric trucks. Yeah, so of course. Unfortunately, there was that negative that we saw. So we sat back on that. We will do a rollout later this year, though. We're going to go and get the fleet done, yep. um, all done at once, and then we'll do a big bang sort of approach out in Brisbane, which might create a bit more energy. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's an interesting one, to be fair, like to see the consumer choices and what they want and the board choices and how it influences this. But in the end of the day, the it's a fine line to play between, you know, shouting to the grandstands about this is an electric truck and the risk that can come of that or making sure people are aware that it's, you know, you, what you're doing. So It's a bit interesting. A lot of people's perception of a delivery is that two people turning up in a vehicle to do a delivery, they think that should be $5 or $6. They don't have a concept of that actually costs a fair bit of money to put the labour costs alone, let yeah. alone the equipment costs. So when it comes to paying more for an EV, I would sort of lean towards the fact if you had a diesel box and an EV cost, they're going to go for whatever's the cheapest option rather yep. than what is the right thing to do. Mm. You might find a small percentage of people would do that. So 
to a large extent, as we were saying earlier, the, the actual running costs of the vehicle, mm. if you amortise it over five years, mm. take away the CapEx and you put it into finance, it actually runs very similar to a diesel. So you actually find a situation where the consumer is probably just going to say, I want to pay the same amount of money. Yeah, I agree. Look, I'll be the first to admit I, I always get the fastest freight. Do you? Oh, I'm hopeless. Actually, saying that, I did order same-day delivery yeah. two days ago. Instant gratification. All it is, it is, yeah. and you're not wide so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, audience. <laughs> <laughs> the the interesting part, I think, about you know, this for me is you've talked about like a straight swap over and the, the stakeholder and management for the, the drivers and, and all the rest of it, but I think what people don't realise a lot of the time is that these vehicles, diesel or electric, would be doing the same job. You know, mm. a lot of the time I'll say to someone, the range is this, that vehicle, oh, that's not enough. Well, no, there are applications out there where that is more than sufficient in doing it straight away. And yours is a very interesting application because right now it makes sense full stop in terms of that swap over. It'd be interesting to see how that expands as we go into the future as well. Well, one of the things it's going to do is is in, transport industry is one of the most regulated industries mm. that you'll ever get uh, because of the way we, you know, you can only work 12 hours, you've got to follow all these rules and re- you've got to stay on the left-hand side of the road, believe it or not. Sometimes. Yeah, so <laughs> all of these... Now, sort of, that's yeah. just an Australian. I've been on the M1. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, we do go out in the third lane. So, but, but if you look at that sort of stuff from a... Um, when you look the the routing and all that that's being done now, because you've got to have mandatory rest breaks for the mm. drivers and all that, what you're now doing is when you're doing a routing planning is you're actually routing their plan to have a rest at a charger. And what you're doing is you're, you're actually helping regulate. So the added benefit of having this is that the driver can't just pull into any service station and get fuel. Mm. He's got to go to that one and then he's having his break so or her break and then you've got the situation where you're actually getting a safety benefit from the fatigue and from the COR or the chain of responsibility as well. That's a really good point. <laughs> um, have you had any detractors? Like, have you had any kickback from anyone? Has there been any sort of negativity along um, the way? Like, uh, we spoke about the drivers, but elsewhere in the in the operation or even, you know. Probably the only thing in the food chain at the moment that is the vehicles that they're servicing. And at the moment, the beautiful thing with us is we could take a, a Volvo into a Volvo dealership. They can service that. The equipment we've got now doesn't necessarily have a dealership. So we're taking it, I think, to my car to get them serviced because it's an arrangement that the the importer is organised. So mm. you, you get a little bit nervous around the fact that is this a sustainable servicing network? And when the vehicle gets bent in an accident, someone runs into it or belts it, how do you get parts? How do you get the thing back on the road? Whereas with a diesel, you go and just get another diesel truck. Yeah. With this type of equipment, you've got to wait. I mean, mm. there is a lead time on the equipment versus mm. actually getting them straight away like a diesel truck. Mm. That raises another interesting point, I suppose, which is insurance, because I actually had a conversation with somebody about this the other day mm. with one of our electric trucks. I was pointing out all the bits of the electric truck that actually weren't electric. Yeah. So therefore, it didn't need to be that much more expensive. Yeah. So is insurance risen? Or? Yeah, our insurer has been a little bit confused by it. We, we use a broker that doesn't. Yeah. I think confused would probably be the best word because when we initially went to register this vehicle in 2019, Department of Transport didn't have a box for an electric truck. So we went to register the truck and they didn't know how to, there was no box for it. So we actually had to get the form changed in Queensland Transport. Cylinders, zero. (laughs) (laughs) And it was going, but no, you can't do it because it doesn't exist. And we're going, well, there it is, it exists. It's ADL compliant, it's ready to go. (laughs) We had all of that on there. So I think insurers are probably in the similar boat. They've had the Teslas, they've had the Leafs, they've had, 
the cars around for a while. Mm. They know the experience when they get bent, what happens with them and what has the replacement. Yeah. But I think there's not enough knowledge in the insurers around how it works. And as a result, the premiums are pretty nasty. Um, okay. And it's, you're probably paying three to four times what you'd pay for. And I know the vehicle costs more money and I, there's mm. an element of that, but it's probably you know, a they're, four ton versus a four ton. You're probably paying three to four times the time amount. They're putting a lot of risk in, in that. Yeah. Of course they are. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, you said you made a comment about the cars and they know that, but I don't know when I registered my EV, you know, got insurance for my and same when you were doing the same as with yours, Matt. Like we had anywhere between fourteen hundred dollars and four thousand dollars from wow. you know large scale insurers with the same information, mm. same parameters. So again, it's that volume and maturity and getting the data and understanding mm. the risk overall. It's, it's still got to progress as well. Yeah, no one under sixty is allowed to drive our car. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd made that comment. <laughs> well, I'm only 31, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. this is what it did to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is what the yeah, journey did to me. Great for 31. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, really, what were the biggest challenges? If you want to just paint a picture of a journey, so we've got the commercial reason why mm-hmm. to do it and the how to work with people to get it done. But what were some of the biggest hurdles? So for us as a business, we were very conscious of our model. Being an owner-driver model, we didn't want to necessarily break that model. So what we did was we approached a lot of financial institutions to say, hey, listen, one of a better word, we'll go guarantor on the funding for these guys, but we need them to buy the equipment. Mm. And a lot of the major finances, including our own bank, yeah, 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 we'll do that. When you got to the 11th hour, they go, oh, bit hard, bit hard, maybe not. Yeah, we don't know the equipment. It's a lot of money. We got that sort of approach. So we got the pushback probably from the finance, which meant that we went out and self-funded it ourselves. Mm. But that was the trick was probably getting finance was difficult. Insurance was the challenge getting through from there. The education of the people, education of the fleet managers in particular around them, because this getting the skepticism out of the whole, out of the business was probably one of the big challenges and getting our people to say, actually, and that's why we created the story. We are going to people's homes. We are delivering on vehicles that are good for your family to have in your streets. That was getting that, that out of the business and getting regulation, finding out the rules and regulations because the vehicles obviously have a a bit more weight in them, so therefore you lose carrying capacity. Mm. That's now been addressed. But you had that initially when we went there. We had this big truck that could carry in a diesel equivalent three tonne, and all of a sudden they're saying you can go 1,500 kilos. We're going, no, 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 no. Surely we can change the configuration on this to have it so like for like. And we got that changed as well. But I think a lot of lack of knowledge, I think, was people making decisions like finances and insurers making decisions because they weren't educated. Going forward, what are your hurdles then? Because that's, you know, you're talking about the past and probably current, but going forward, what are going to be the hurdles you can see? Number Charging one, infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, number one is massively infrastructure. So for us to get serious about this, mm. if we want it to be a uh, zero emission by 2025, we have to get Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Mackay, all the way through, all set up with, with suitable EV charging for commercial vehicles, not EV charging in shopping centres, because EV charging in shopping centres a lot of the trucks, you can't access them because of the height, yep. and that's not going to work for us. We normally park across five car parks to use a, uh, a, a passenger. At the moment. At the moment, yeah. yes, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, we're, even we're, at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, we'll, we'll take up more in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And I think I shared a picture of a Commodore V8 sitting in a charging spot yeah, yeah, at the BP yeah, pulse. Yeah, yeah. So you, you get that sort of – it's a bit of ignorance, I think, from the public, and they don't understand how important it is to get the charging access. Mm. And obviously for a commercial vehicle is 
is we need more space. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure that it's they don't understand. I think they do. I think it's one of Jesus' choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think it's really uh, about that. I've seen the stickers before or cards you put on people who do that, and it's like, uh, just be aware that you blocking this charge is equivalent of uh, someone shutting down uh, every petrol bowser in the, in the next, you know, 30-kilometre radius. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I think most people get a kick out of that. Yeah, if you're yeah, the sort of person yeah, that yeah. actually yeah, um, yeah. likes doing that. Yeah, Just yeah. sitting over there under the tree laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> look at the silly grannies. Well, we yeah. – uh, a lot of states have implemented fining for that as well now, so there are mechanisms for the police to to find them if they're not an EV in a certain. Space. And I think they should. I mean, yeah, it's, well, it affects us commercially, yeah. Because what happens is we miss that charging slot, we don't get the vehicle, driver doesn't get his brake properly. Mm, There's a whole mm. lot of consequential things that go on. Mm. So for us, aside from the infrastructure, I actually feel it's really going very well. We've now picked up on a commercial model, which is the service as I keep yeah. getting it wrong. Criminal as a service. Criminal as a service. Where that's actually coming through now where the guys can actually get the equipment, put them in, go out there and actually start operating them straight away. Yeah. And that takes away all the noise because they don't have to worry about the maintenance or anything like that. It's a one it's all bill. Done. It's a one bill that can, you know. The one-stop shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that result there means that I think the uptake will be a lot faster. Yep. Makes it easier. It's another, yep. another barrier broken down. Yep. What we want to see as an Australian thing is to get the OEMs in, into Australia mm. with the smaller equipment. I mean, I'm selfish because we use small equipment. Yeah, yeah. But I'd love to see the you know the small equipment coming into Australia because that that'll have a massive uptake on last mile. But it's a good use case. You know, as you've mm. illustrated, you're doing up to 200 kilometres. You know, that, that those vehicles are very suited. They're in metro areas where people mm -hmm. are breathing in. They're doing a use case and application that electric can cover off now. It's not line, haul and road trains and all the rest of it. You know, it'd be really good to see four and a half, six tonne. Is that about right? That's a, yeah, yeah, so yeah. They're, they're, they're four and a half down. So even yeah. even the two-tonne vans, yeah. if, if you have a look again from, you know, your, your, your Aussie Post Star Treks, they're whizzing up and down the streets mm. and there's mm. lots of them. Mm. And there's you, there's an instant bang. There's well, they're, stopping, they're stopping lots and they're not doing, you know, that great a distance. But, yeah, yeah it's it's been a, from what we've heard from people in that space for vans, and please correct me if I'm wrong or add to it, but, mm. you know, Everyone said, you know, OEMs, oh, we're bringing this many in. We'll have this one available now. And they just haven't been able to get the supply to Australia mm. to facilitate it because the demand's there. We've seen a high, a high demand for EVs and that smaller commercial, lighter commercial applications. And you look at, at Europe and you go yeah. from London to Rome is going from Brisbane to Cairns. Yeah. So when you're going across, it's, it's the tyranny of distances probably yep. in Australia makes it, and obviously the market's a lot smaller. So you've mm. got you've got those challenges. I, and I get them. I get that. And it's sort of, that's the hard thing is, and but if you were to paint a picture in five years' time, OEMs, these things are going to be everywhere. Mm. And for us, it's going to be a situation which is it, our business model returns to normal, you know, whereas we don't have to be the trailblazers anymore. Mm. You'll normalise the situation and be quite proliferant about it. So. Yep. And quite happily putting out that we are taking that CO2 out of the air mm. and actually doing something because the transport industry is a big polluter and I think mm. we can't take that off the table that we generate. Yeah. We burn a lot of diesel as, a, we, as an industry. We do burn a lot of diesel. Matt, what was it? 25% of transport emissions comes from heavy vehicles or commercial um, vehicles? Road. Transport. Road, trans road transport, we're 25%. Yeah. So it's a big number. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a dirty industry, but a necessary one. Oh, very much so.
Like going we found with the toilet paper crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone learned what logistics does. All my mates like me now. They yeah, used, to, yeah, yeah. used to be at the bottom of the pile. They all like me now because we bought t- toilet paper. Yeah, so, yeah. You run our economy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I still remember the great cannelloni stampede of 2021 yeah. yes. in our local supermarket. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, I think we'll wind it up there. Thank you very much for coming oh, in. And uh, always good to chat. And hopefully we'll be talking again in another couple of years and about all the future expansion and all the new vehicles and all that sort of stuff. So and how easy it was. And- oh, yeah, of course. absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to share the story. That's no great. Worries. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you. Appreciate Ta- it. Thank you for listening to Emerging Possibilities. Send your comments, suggestions and questions to emerging.possibilities at volvo.com. And of course, remember to rate and review this show.